Welcome to another episode of Nipe's Story. We're a fortnightly podcast that brings you audio versions of short stories from Kenya and across the continent. I'm your host, Kevin Wachiro. Karibu. And on this episode, we're featuring Stupid Death by Brenda Ciara. She did not mourn. She had promised herself and him that in the event he died a stupid death, she would not mourn for him and she would not be the one to bury him. In fact, she had told him, though in repartee at the time, when their love was just blooming and their young lives were filled with wonder, that if he died a stupid death, in her fury she would flog his corpse out in public. She did not, and she did bury him, but mourn, she did not. That promise she did keep. At the back of the house on a makuti chair, Ayira sat with her back straight. Her palms lay open on her lap, an indication not of expectancy, but rather of despair. She gazed blankly into space at the nothingness that there was, but was not, for it was nothing. She glared somewhat attentively as though to comprehend this emptiness that had now become of her world. This emptiness that had made certain her would-be abundant life would not be. It would appear to one who may have cared to look that through her eyes she had met the arm of death that had snatched away her love from her, leaving her cold, lonely and helpless. And so she sat there, staring at every bulge of its muscles, every popping vein along its stretch, every knuckle of its fist, and concluded the inevitable. Against it, she could not win. And so, helpless, all she could do was stare. They would be right, though only in part. Ayira lacked not the strength to confront death, but rather, the will to do so. The void she stared into had indeed robbed her. Next to where she sat, it had taken his place. With a tick of a clock, time had bound up all their lifelong dreams, tossed them into the cart of irrelevance, and sent them off to oblivion, all in one swift motion. It almost made her laugh, thinking herself and him naive for believing. How fleeting happiness was, like fresh milk gone sour in the heat of day. Although she would have wished for things to not be so, she was wise to know the way of things. She had learned that daring fate could only get human so far. In the end, fate always won. Fate and death, she deduced, were woven from the same thread. And so it was that death also always won. Stupid, stupid death. It had taken him and soon enough it would take her too. It was the way of life. People left for good. It was thanks to that look of absence in her eyes that Ayira had made it through the day without drawing unwanted concern to her inadequate display of grief. 
it was custom that at a Lua funeral, everyone must wail. It was not gazetted as customary law, nor did any Gweng ever have a sit-down to mandate it, at least as far as she was informed. Nonetheless, it was common knowledge. Where there is death, the Lua must wail. The wailing had begun at the hospital when his sister came to visit that last morning. Aloof, she had walked right past Ayira, who sat on the floor of the corridor outside the ward, drowsy from keeping vigil. She had grown used to her sister-in-law's disregard for her, never attempting to either understand it nor mitigate. Ayira supposed that if there was any rationale behind such behavior, then it would be found in some guidebook, sisters-in-law, read, or some secret society they were members of, because from all the tales she heard, all sisters-in-law behaved the same. She walked to his bedside and placed the bottle of Lucasade on the nightstand, then turned to wake her brother up. He did not respond. She called out his name, but still no response. He lay there, eyes closed, his dry, chapped lips apart and blood-stained, the bone structure of his face pronounced and his body cold. Oh, this! Oh, this! Nurse! Somebody! Ayira ran into the ward, panic-stricken. His sister was frantic, shaking him, tapping him. A nurse rushed in, followed by the matron on duty. Wait outside, commanded the matron. Ayira did not feel her feet carrying her out of the ward, and although she could see and hear the sister-in-law's lamentations, pacing back and forth, weeping, crying, and repeatedly saying, Oh this, this, why do you leave me? Arms crossed atop her head, Shaking her body to the rhythm of her wailing, her mind remained frozen in time, refusing to comprehend the events unfolding, lest by its understanding it should affirm and cast in stone the truth it rebuffed. All she could think of repeatedly were the words, He'll be better in the morning, just let him rest. By evening, their one-bedroom house in Nairobi's Makongeni estate was full. Irrespective of costs and the fact that his body would eventually be transported and buried in their home village in Ugenya, his relatives still insisted on traveling to Nairobi for the wake. A perfect excuse, Ayira thought, to come to the big city and enjoy whatever wealth they imagined their son, brother, cousin, nephew had gathered up for himself, where money fell from trees. Tea-filled vacuum flasks, buttered slices of bread, plates and plastic metallic and enamel cups made rounds from sink to table. Stools and chairs were offered by Ayira's neighbors, and for the night they gave extra mattresses and room on their floors for the grieving relatives. All week condolences were shared, discussions were had, a budget was made and money contributed. It was settled. Ayira would see to the obituary being published in the paper and buy what Odis would be buried in. Odis's elder brother would shop for the coffin. 
his younger brothers would organize transportations to Ugenya for his remains and for the relatives in Nairobi. His sister would buy the family's mourning clothes and the relatives still in Ugenya would see to it that the grave was dug. In a week's time, Odis's body would leave Nairobi City Mortuary on a hearse for a requiem mass at St. Peter Claver's, spend the night at Makongeni, and at the crack of dawn, begin its final journey to Ugenya. Every now and then there was a shriek, a noisy sob, a whimper, a yowl in the distance when a newly arrived relative began wailing when still several feet away from the house. The 29-seater Isuzu minibus, its side mirrors adorned with small green tree branches, turned from the tarmac and onto the dusty Maram Road. Excited to see a vehicle, little village-born children in frazzled clothing abandoned their afternoon playtime to follow the grieving riders. In their running and squealing, they drew the attention of the adults who drew their heads out of their huts or peered through the fences of their homesteads or lifted their gaze from the baskets of grain they were sorting. The grinding of millet stopped and hoes were abandoned in the fields at the sight of the coffin fastened with sisal rope on top of the minibus. Well! Ooh-wee! From tuition fees to a packet of sugar, their lamentations were clear. They mourned not merely for the man, but for the loss of privilege. They were about to bury not just their son, their brother, nephew, cousin, grandchild. They were saying goodbye to a benefactor. There was silence now as she sat on that Makuti chair. The theatrical grieving, the howling, the shaking of loose flesh to the rhythm of cries and lamentations, the throwing of oneself to the ground and the rolling in the dirt of weeping persons had subsided. Those who spoke to the man in the coffin, urging him to awaken, had muted their pleas since his casket disappeared, shovel by shovel beneath the covering of red earth. The cows had been slaughtered, the roasted meat savoured and the leftovers shared. The pots of rice, vegetables, stew, ugali, beef stew, osuga, nyoyo, had been consumed and most of the mourners gone. Whatever was unguarded, unlocked, and unhidden in their house had by then been stolen. Ayira did not care. What was to her most important? The body had been buried. Her eyes blinked, and her refreshed gaze peered beyond the freshly covered grave in the distance to the unkempt piece of land that stood behind it. Its boundaries were marked by banana trees, on it, she and Odis would have built their retirement home, a stone-walled three-bedroom bungalow with galvanized roofing. Ayira would have liked to have a two-story house, but Odis was careful to warn her, 
big houses like that attract Jejuongi. You know our people and their jealousy. They will kill me. They were both village-born and raised, yearning for something more, something a life in the city might offer. Ambitious, they nursed dreams of making it to Nairobi, finding white-collar employment and breaking free from poverty. As she sat on that Makuti chair, I recall the day Odis landed the job with Kenya Railways as a train inspector and told her he had been offered a house with it. She could not hold back her tears at the prospect of leaving the one-room shack in Kibira Slam for a one-bedroom stone house in Makongeni Estate. The one-room mud shack is all they could afford from Odis's weekly wages, working as a casual laborer in Nairobi's industrial area and her meagre earnings from selling the mandazis she fried out on the slum's little streets. But now, electricity, running water, it was happening. Their dreams were starting to come true. That night, they made love in their one-room shack in Kibera. As they slept, they held each other close. But not merely to escape the cold, they held each other as though to grasp firmly at their dreams, lest in the dead of night their dreams grew wings and at the crack of dawn took flight, escaping far, far beyond their reach. In the months that followed, Aira too had moved from selling mandazi on the alleys of Kibera to working as the tea girl at an international IT company on Mombasa Road. By the end of that year, their one-bedroom house in Makongeni had a wall unit and two new recliners to replace the plain wooden dining chairs they owned. As she sat on that Makuti chair, Aira thought back to the day they bought their first television set, a 13-inch screen, analog, black-and-white TV. Or this fixed the antenna, and they both stood back, side by side, to watch the first images take shape from the static. They had become familiar with the voices on radio of Leonard Mambotella and Fred Obachi Mashoka, and loved listening to radio theatre, but seeing... Seeing was magic. That night, they watched the news for the first time on the only TV channel there was. The news featured largely clips of President Moy's events of the day and of a handful of men who had lost their sight and some who had died from consuming some illicit brew. At the report that a government crackdown would follow on all drinking spots in the city slums, or this remarked outrage. Joki, now what do they want people like us to drink? We cannot afford to buy Tasca or Pilsner. So where should we go if they shut down these joints? But they are not good. What kind of Changa causes blindness refuted Ayira? No, persisted all this. Why would those women who brew Changa want to poison their clients? Those are lies. That is propaganda. 
They just want to take away what we can afford. Tomorrow Kenya breweries will, will be making changa and selling for a hundred shillings a bottle. Then you will tell me. So it is the government that has poisoned people so it can shut down joints for Kenya breweries. <laughs> she shrugged. Anyway, if you ask me, that's a stupid way to die. Stupid? There's no happier way to go. With no worries, just merrymaking, he added with slight banter. All those fires that kill people who siphon oil from electricity transformers or overturn trailers, those are stupid deaths. At that, Odis stood up and pulled Ayira from her recliner. He held her close and began to move them both to the tune he hummed of Leswanyika's song, Sinamakosa. As he began to sing the words, Ayira giggled. Okay, have your fun, but just know that if you die a stupid death, I won't mourn you. I'm not even going to bury you. Or this laughed harder. I'm going to beat you with a cane in front of everyone at your burial. You can't just leave me uselessly like that. If you must leave me, then you can go in, she thought for a couple of seconds, then added, in a plane crash, for example. Laughter erupted from them both. You know, with some dignity. Oh, so if I die, if I must leave you, then I must go as a VIP. They laughed some more. Later that night, Odis and Ayira made love in their one-bedroom stone house in Makongeni. As they lay there asleep side by side, each dreamed of the things they hoped to achieve. For indeed, they had seen proof that dreams came true when they dared to dream. And so they did. They dared to dream. In three years, his first promotion came. In another two, the next. And now, they could afford to cement the floor and walls for his mother's hut in Ugenya and had started to build a semi-permanent house of their own next to hers. Another 10 to 15 years with a loan from the Sako, they would have their retirement home. Seated on that Makuti chair, thinking of what could have been, Ira smiled, though with much effort. Finally, she cracked the cast that had become her face. Within herself, she questioned whether they had succeeded. She wondered if the misery she endured was the work of those wizards, or this had warned her of. If there was any truth to it, were they not supposed to have waited for the house to go up? Or did they follow them to Nairobi where money fell from trees? Had they caught up with them and cut them at their knees? She damned those wizards who gloried in causing misfortune where there was happiness and in blowing out candles where there was light. She thought of her and the first day she had met her. She recalled how she had been fooled by her innocence. So much so that she was unable to see through his uneasiness. She was to go to college during the day and help Ayira out in the evenings and weekends. Though Ayira did not need any help around the house, she did want to help a relative, no matter how distant a relative of his she was. 
She was a young mind with dreams, and she reminded Ayira of her younger self. 1986, a high school graduate from a village in Siaya, in the big city, with dreams to join a secretarial college, find a job and make a decent living. So she stayed, until she began to complain of constant fever. They tried chloroquine, fancida. Then there was that cold that would not go away, the cough that would not go away, the weight that did not go away. And then, without a word, she was gone. Her bag was missing, no note left behind, and no word of her whereabouts. She vanished. Quickly forgotten, it soon became awkward for Ayira to keep inquiring when others showed next to no concern. It was getting dark. The young men of the village were already setting up the sound system in preparation for the all-night Benga session of music and dance, meant to console the bereaved after they had bid farewell to their loved one. Aira broke free from her trance at the squeaky sound of feedback. She called to those inside the house behind her to get her some food. She ate silently and contentedly. The music had begun to play and the compound was full again, but this time with the young and jovial. The little children jumped around and the teenagers showed off their best rumba moves. She watched them, emotionless. There she was, her widow at just twenty-six, and all alone in the world. No parents, no siblings, no husband and no children. Up until then, Ayura had never thought she would ever be grateful for her inability to bear children. She had lost her mother in her infancy, and being the first of her mother's womb, she was left with no siblings. Her father had remarried, but the second wife never bore him any children. He died just before Ayira Nodis left for Nairobi in 1986. Ayira's father was an only child too. His father died before he was born, and his mother refused to be inherited. Maybe by some ancestral curse, this loneliness, she thought, had become their fate and the fate of their seed for generations to come. Her father's fate had become hers and hers would become her seeds until that last morning. On that last morning when the doctor called her aside, when he explained the fever that would not go away, the weight that did not go away, the cough that persisted and the bloody sputum, which finally convinced Sodis to go to the hospital, it became clear. The threat of that generational curse had been diffused. It would not transcend, not any more. Stupid death had made certain of it. She placed the enamel-coated metal plate on the grass beside her makuti chair, picked up the plastic bottle that lay beside it and stood up. She turned her back, to look at the semi-permanent house in the light of the bonfire. This was the work of their hands, the fruit of their eight years in the big city where money fell from trees. The train inspector and the tea girl would have stood side by side, them against the world. She unscrewed the bottle and drank. It is dawn and the smell of smoke and millet fills the air as porridge boils in 30-inch aluminum pots atop flaming logs. 
The homestead is quiet, save for the sound of chirping birds and the calm correspondence between the women who have remained behind to prepare the widow to fulfill her burial rites. The early risers have reached their fields and the dairy farmers have milked their herd. In the distance, where the fresh grave remains and the heavy mist slowly subsides, a woman's body lies covered in dew. A white scarf covers the woman's yet unshaven head. In a little while, the dyer will arrive. With the help of some petroleum jelly and a razor blade, the dyer will shave off the woman's thick afro and leave her bald. With the black cotton dress she wears as she lies there, she will become inseparable. For a yet unspecified number of days, she will not be permitted to take a bath. The black cotton dress which she wore on the day she buried her husband will be her sole attire until she is inherited. It is yet uncertain of when this happening shall become. For first, Nyakaolek. The prerequisite for her being inherited is a dream. She must dream of her late husband in bed with her. If she does not get the dream, it will be a sign that he is displeased with her, and so she shall remain widowed until he relents and she dreams. If she does dream but wishes not to be inherited, if she declines to fulfill this right, she shall become an outcast, one who can no longer enter the homes of others for fear that she brings with her ill luck, one with no one to fend for her, and one with taboo-enforced restrictions to her fending for herself. She has contemplated all this. She has considered her dead husband's brother. He will want to very much, not only because she is still young and attractive, but also because she is a Nairobian, a Nyar town. She has asked herself, what if he knew? What if he knew about the stupid death? Do you still want to? She has concluded that he might still want to. He will be marrying into the riches there are, where money falls from trees. Stupid death does not stand in the way of dreamers until it does. We made it home for Easter or this, just like we promised, Ayira said softly, as she sat down on the earth beside the grave that had no tombstone. A small cross of unpolished wood stood mounted in the earth at the head of the grave, with the dead's name and his two most significant dates painted on it. No epitaph. Ayira on this could not afford to travel to Ugenya for Christmas, so they promised their relatives that they would make it for Easter. Here we are, Odis, here we are. We would have stood side by side on top of the world, but... Here we are. Here we are. Stupid death! She sipped the last of what that bottle held. Laying back down, she read aloud the words painted on the cross that stood atop the fresh grave. Samson Odiambo Mangira Born 16th August 1964 Died 23rd March, 1994.
Oh, this? Why so soon? Aira sighed as she lay on her back and stared at the starlit night. She imagined herself flying high, high, past the sky, her and her love, side by side on top of the world. When she could see no more, she let the sound of the music and the cheering of the young flood her mind and drown her thoughts, until she perceived nothing more and knew that she perceived no more. She did not mourn, for she knew that in a little while she would take her place once again right next to him. In a little while they would lie side by side at the foot of the world. The morning sun is out, but its warmth is unfelt where the mist has subsided and the dew has dried. The wind sweeps through the fields, still light at the break of day, searching for tales it must carry to and fro as the day ages. The Dio has arrived, and a teenage girl has been sent to find the widow. In the widow's room, the bed is made. The bathroom slippers and basin are dry. In the kitchen is nothing but the now-cold pot of leftover porridge. The girl steps out of the back door of the house, and in the distance, where the mist has subsided and the dew has dried, she can see the widow, who did not mourn. She bends down to wake her and calls, Auntie! Auntie Ayira! The girl falls back in fright and sits on the earth beside the fresh grave and the widow who did not mourn. Stupid death has won! The wind sweeps by, for there is news to carry. Wail! Stupid Death was read to you by Sitawa Namwali and written by Brenda Sierra. Brenda Sierra is a Kenyan writer and author of both fiction and nonfiction. Her works of fiction have appeared in the Kalahari Review and Green Black Tales. Her Christian inspirational book, Exodus, on course for a cause, was published in 2013 by Tate Publishing, Oklahoma, USA. To know more about Brenda's writing and her other interests, you can follow her on Twitter and her handle is at Sierra. Sierra spelled S I. A-R-A. Our last two podcasts have been recorded at the Non On Record Studios. Non On Record is a digital media organization that works with African LGBT communities across the African continent and the diaspora. To know more about them, visit their website, nononrecord.com. Nipe's Story is available to download wherever you get your podcasts from. We're constantly looking for short stories of between 750 to 4,500 words. So email your stories to producer at fingerpiano.co.ke if you'd like to submit your story for consideration. That's how Brenda got in touch with us. Follow us here on SoundCloud and on Facebook we are Nipe Story and on Twitter our handle is Nipe underscore story. Nipe Story is a finger piano production.